0: Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My my guest today is Christopher Rocchio. Christopher is a nationally best-selling author. His current project is The Sun Eater, a five-volume space opera with clear allusions to the classical canon. Christopher is a graduate of North Carolina State University. Go Wolfpack! And today he's joining me for a discussion on C.S. Lewis' seminal book, The Abolition of Man. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. It is. It's, uh, I, I don't remember how many years it's been, but I know we did this a long time ago when I first discovered your series, and uh, you came on my old show, the uh, What's the Rez? So I'm so glad you could come back for uh, another discussion that's uh, tied to book four.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah. So uh,
0: no, it's good to be back. Fantastic. Well, um, let's uh, let's kind of start with a bit of intro stuff. Tell us a bit about yourself and about your series. Um, I understand that, uh, book five is about to come out. I, I don't know if you have an advanced copy you could show us, but, uh, uh I do
1: actually. Uh, so, uh, this is, uh, the fifth book in the series, uh, Ashes of Man. The first is Empire of Silence would be probably more helpful if I had one of those. Uh, but, uh, they're over there somewhere. Uh, in any case, uh, it's a, a space opera, sort of in the tradition of Dune or uh, Star Wars. So it's you know thousands of years in our future, not a galaxy far, far away, uh, and it's uh, it's set in a galactic empire that's very sort of late Roman kind of Byzantine in its in its feeling, and that's very it's a very self conscious choice uh, on the part of the universe uh, characters in the universe as well as. Uh, you know, me. And, uh, so the main character is a nobleman named Hadrian. He runs away from home and he gets stuck in the middle of a war between said human empire and their first aliens who in all those thousands of years have ever really posed a threat to it. Um, and he tells you on page one, it's written kind of like a memoir. Well, it is written like a memoir that he's the man who ended that war and dealt with the Cielson, these aliens, and uh, his stories, why and how, and about all the things that didn't make it into the official, record uh i've been uh publishing since uh 2018 empire of silence came out uh in july 2018 uh so i've got uh five novels out two novellas and something like 20 short stories uh i've been plugging along i'm working on book six now i've written about 170,000 words of it um so uh you know we should finish the next couple months so i know a bunch of people are sort of gun shy about unfinished series uh and uh you know i'm doing my best here so
0: so it is officially a six-volume series.
1: That is the way it's looking at the moment. There is a chance it, it could be seven. Uh, it's not really—we're getting into sort of the the backdoor uh, sure. you know, angling on how how that's going. But we are we are nearing nearing the end. You know, either we one long final volume or two shorter ones. My last book uh, got split into Kingdoms of Death, the one that you you showed and uh, Ash is a Man here, so it turned into two volumes. That same thing could recur.
0: Uh, you know, we'll see. Right. That same thing seemed to happen to Jim Butcher with uh, his most recent volumes in um, uh, Ocrud in the uh, Dresden Files series. Because I know he, uh, I was I was one of the thousands of fans who were waiting for his book, to, next book to come out. And then it came out, but it definitely didn't really have an end. It just sort of had a postscript. Um, the next book is coming out in like two months or something. Uh, so. I guess that explains how you were able to get uh, book five out. That, that seems – is this quicker than your normal writing process? Yeah, I've had two out this year. Uh, book four
1: came out back in March, uh, and this one's out obviously in December. That's pretty quick. I'm usually about one a year, um, so it's it's only a little bit accelerated. But um, the, the issue, right, with the pandemic, you know, the paper cost has gone up such that the, you know, unit cost of printing an individual, you know, in a thousand page book is substantially higher than printing a uh, thousand five hundred page books, uh, you know, eight months apart, right? It's a lot cheaper to do it that way. Um, and so, a lot of us, uh, you know, um, phone book writers uh, have been uh, uh, turned into uh, slimmer book writers uh, as a consequence of uh, sort of material limitations. Of publishing which is sort of a, a dimension of the whole industry nobody really thinks about right i keep telling readers oh the next book's gonna be really long and they're like great And i'm like no not great actually uh you know but uh it's um you know it, you you sort of roll with the punches uh, fortunately i had enough time to really make uh each of these books sort of complete in terms of action mm-hmm. right uh you know to use an aristotelian phrase uh but uh You know, that doesn't work necessarily with everybody, right? Uh, Jim Butcher, I think, you know, those books got kind of chopped straight in half. And I know with, like, uh, the last two Game of Thrones books, a similar thing happened. uh, But just because the book was so long, um, those the fourth and fifth book of that series were conceived of as one volume. uh, And they're each, like, 1,200 pages. So there's just no way. A 2,400-page book is not printable. So...
0: No, I, I, that I find that so interesting because honestly, you're, I'm, I'm one of the people you're describing because I don't think about the material conditions that allow a book to be sold either on Amazon or at Quail Ridge Books or Barnes and Noble or, uh, and then I can get it relatively inexpensively. Uh, but I know it's there's, there's usually a line in t- our tenth, my, my school's tenth or eleventh grade literature sequence where you sort of go across where the printing press has become kind of mainstream. And all of a sudden, our books go from uh, pretty slim poetry that packs so much meaning into this these 10 lines to this expansive novel form. And uh, both Charles Dickens and Mark Twain were being paid by the word at various points. <laughs> and so they have all the incentive in the world to write at great length instead of the previous uh, really those material conditions forced a concision on authors. Uh, so that's that's and I'm sure I, I not to make our discussion too much about inflation today, but I assume inflation has also hit the publishing industry. Uh, I have noticed that my new volumes have tended to go up by three or four dollars, uh, and especially in hardback, that sometimes five or six dollars. Um, is that kind of a combination of factors, both the cost of materials and then publishing houses facing their own inflationary pressures?
1: Sure. No, totally. Uh, there's always been a little bit of that, right. You know, if you look at long running series, right. Cause I used to work at a publisher and some of the series we printed had, you know, 20 books in them, 30 books in them. And so if you go back to the beginning, you know, um, obviously they've been reprinted, but you're still looking at reprints from like eight years ago, right. And those prices are going to be lower than they are now. So if you look at like my series, right, you can see the hardcovers have gone from like $25 up to about 30, which isn't, you know, that's about keeping pace, honestly, with what I would have expected. Uh, but you know, I will see what the next volume looks like. It might go up to 32 or something like that. But the good thing about literature is it's still relatively cheap as a form of entertainment. Uh, as far as, you know, readers are concerned, you know, and end users, so to speak, uh, relative to like, say video games, right. Or, or God forbid going to, going to the, movie theater, right? Uh, so, um, you know, there's there's sort of an argument, uh, especially with things like eBooks, right? And with self-publishing mm-hmm. as well, that there is uh, a bit of a sort of pulp renaissance that's been made possible by by some of the technology that, because of the relative um, difference in price point for like hours of entertainment. You know, video games will still beat you probably, you know, in terms of like dollar to hour uh, enjoyed, you know, but um, you do a lot better to buy a book than you know spending A billion dollars to go to the theater right so um and of course um you know not exactly competing with uh with streaming in the same way right although we of course you know you're competing with every form of entertainment you know regardless of what form of entertainment you're producing right i am uh, competing with video games for people's attention so um you know that's a little bit of a challenge but yes uh you know um the publishing industry is in a right state at the moment. Um, and that, you know, is true regardless of whether or not you're independently published or independently published or traditionally published. So, um, it's, uh, it is, it's tough out there, but it's tough for everybody, you know?
0: So. Yep. Yeah. I just think that's, there, there's been so much crossover. It seems like in recent years between book and video game and film, those used to be somewhat, um, distinct mediums, but then, I got really intrigued by the Netflix show, the witcher and discovered it was a series of books and then discovered that they were actually the book version of a video game, which made a lot more, the, the book structure made a lot more sense to me when I understood the origin of it. And it, it seems like, and now the, uh, uh, I know there are halo novels. I've never read those, but a uh, not very good. <laughs> uh, uh, halo TV show. I, I like the first couple episodes, and then it's like they forgot the plot for the next eight, and it never recovered. But there, there just seems to be this constant mixing back and forth between, uh, between media forms at this point.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of crossover. I will say The Witcher started out, actually, as, as the books, right? Oh, okay. Um, the, video games, um, the video games were uh, conceived of as sequels to the book series. Uh, which the the author of the books has never really uh, been a fan of. He's kind of famously curmudgeonly, which I which I like about him. Uh, but uh, and you would too, given the name of the show. Uh, of here for sure. Yeah, he's like this video game thing's never going to catch on, and and, and uh, <laughs> in in a certain way, the video games are the definitive form of of that story at this point, which is um, which is difficulty. Um, but uh, they actually started out as the short stories in in magazines. They were sort of um, not serialized because they were short stories, but they appeared, you know, in um, pulp fantasy magazines in Poland. Right. Because uh, And that's um, used to be really how a lot of science fiction was done. Uh, you know, uh, the sort of prestige format for science fiction was the short story for a long time. And um, more so than fantasy, really, at least in the English-speaking tradition, right? Science fiction grew out of these sort of, uh, you know, circulars, right? In the same way that, like, you know, you had had the Strand, right, with Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, We had uh, a whole bunch of things like uh, Planet Stories and Astounding and and Weird Mm -hmm. Tales and whatnot. It's where you get, like, Lovecraft and Howard and, you know, all those guys. Um, Of course, you know, the novel's sort of taken over at this point. But, uh, you know, even, even there, right, you know, you see with, um, with things like self-publishing and, uh, like, Amazon's got a, a sort of serialized, uh, a, a way to, to produce serialized fiction now. Uh, you see a lot of that kind of coming back in new ways, which is interesting. And, um, and then you've got writers who are doing things like Substack, right, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they're putting out um, chapters that way, right? Or, you know, there are a lot of different options. So in, in a certain way, even though uh, publishing is very shaky and it's never been... Uh, sort of harder to really make a name for yourself. It's never been easier to try, so it's oh. um, it's uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting time uh, for sure.
0: Definitely, I know that some of that uh, that touch and go with technology is something we'll get to uh, later on our conversation today. That's that Lewis has lots of thoughts about that. Before we jump to Lewis, though, I did want to ask you a couple other questions about your series, and this sure. is going to indulge my uh, desire to ask the author why he did what he did for a moment. Um, you mentioned earlier that you intentionally set this in sort of a futuristic Roman Empire, and I remember as I was reading through, there keep being reference like you, you're doing something really interesting with Ar- with Arthurian legend in there, oh, yeah. sort of combine the Roman and Arthurian traditions together. Um, talk to us for just a moment about kind of why you chose to do that, what are you doing and drawing on those traditions, and how does that work in your story.
1: Yeah. So really, uh, the Sun Eater is kind of a kitchen sink project, right? This is something I've been working on in some form or other since I was a kid. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, like, like Tolkien, right. Writing the first sentence of the Hobbit on the back of an exam. I was constantly writing, uh, my own random, uh, ideas on the like left side of my notebooks, right. It'd be math notes here and then gibberish on this side. Uh, so I wasn't grading the exams. I was taking them. Uh, and, uh, (laughs) And so i did that uh you know year after year growing up and this was always something i wanted to do right i was not um really sure if it was going to be my career you know there are parts where you know i wanted to be some kind of you know physicist i'm very bad at math that didn't work out uh you know and, but i uh, was always writing stories and so this series grew uh you know with me really uh, and I, it's very hard for me to say when exactly it became the version of the world the characters the story that ended up being published um you know maybe sometime in college it congealed into that form um but as a consequence of it's growing with me right like basically everything i've ever ingested has ended up in the story in some way right um uh, you know that is uh not just you know history and and uh the classics right but that's uh the pop culture stuff too uh that's other science fiction works you know there are sort of in jokes or you know it's a very serious series but you know one of the ways i try to to lighten the mood is by including these little these little moments right because uh literature is a tradition right and i want to be a part of that tradition and so being able to sort of you know hyperlink in a sense to to other works right and to culture tradition etc is is very important to me because as uh, there's a tendency right especially with i think fantasy writers but with science fiction as well to uh, believe that uh what they should be doing is creating like a pure new creation and that's actually impossible uh but it's also sort of less rewarding actually and undesirable if you've ever read you know certain fantasy novels where the characters names are all clearly gibberish and they like don't belong to any sort of, you know, uh, framework whatsoever, even if that's a completely invented one, right? Much less mm-hmm. one that's in any way connected or in, I don't like that. So um, in building the world for um, the Sun Eater for the Silent Empire, right? I uh, I knew I wanted to do sort of a late Roman thing. Um, people do a like, like basing the world on the Roman Empire or on classical antiquity, broadly speaking, is a pretty common uh, maneuver for speculative fiction writers uh, Be that fantasy or science fiction, right? Uh, There's obviously a little bit of the late Roman Republican Star Wars, for example, right? Uh, You know, uh, along with
0: Asimov's Foundation series and and all that. I mean, it's just clearly there.
1: Yeah, and 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 that's totally fine. So I, I, by no means, am I saying this is like my original thought, right? But I wanted to put a bit of a Byzantine gloss on it because that's slightly uh, the road less traveled, right? Uh, I find people in the U.S. today like don't even know where the Byzantine Empire was. Uh, you know, so, you know, you can, uh, you can, uh, do something a little bit new that way. But as far as the, the Arthur stuff as well, this is just a consequence of that kitchen sink sort of mentality, right? Um, if you read, uh, if you read Dune, which is probably the most famous science fiction of all time, right? Uh, it's set in a distant future where our time is basically forgotten. Right. There are a couple of bits of connective tissue. Right. Uh, they kind of speak in Islamic uh, religious language, for example. Uh, but there are a couple of moments in the series where there are some very clear uh, call outs to our time and place. And I almost found those moments particularly interesting and the fact that our history would totally vanish. Right. Um, never really struck me as plausible. Right. Uh, even if it's ten thousand years in the future, because the things we have from six thousand years ago, um, stick out to us pretty sharply, actually, right? If you look at like Gilgamesh, for example, um, you know, we, most people probably have at least heard of it, right? They've like heard the name, maybe they remember being told about it in public school, but it's not gone, right? It's, it's actually present in a pretty substantive way. Uh, that doesn't mean that we remember things correctly or in the right contexts or whatever. Right. You know? Um, so I wanted to sort of grab anything that felt symbolically useful, narratively useful, uh, and to build from it. And so the Arthur stuff, obviously, you know, in any sort of kind of heroic adventure story, there's some kind of quest, right? And so the whole questing ethos is important there. Uh, but the Arthur that uh, is remembered in Hadrian's time is this sort of weird uh, syncretism with the Buddha story, right? And this is all based on a really dumb pun. Uh, and that or- is that, uh, you know, Sid Arthur kind of sounds like, you know, Sid Arthur right and this is an incredibly dumb joke but it it provided you know an opportunity right to do something kind of interesting which is which is sort of conflate those two stories and there are some you know there's some weird at least symbolic parallels that you can pull on for example right uh you know merlin gets sealed in a tree the buddha obtains enlightenment while sitting under one might he have learned from the wizard that was sealed in it right uh and it's been thousands of years right so it's possible that somebody could have made a you know a, a silly religion by misunderstanding these things because they don't maybe speak english very well uh old english that is and they're reading these old texts and they're like oh this makes sense and like no that's not you know really an organic approach to the tradition at all so like i like to do things like that in my world building for example i use the word decurion incorrectly right uh you know it is not actually an officer that is in charge of 10 people but it is understandable why you would think that Right. Uh, it's, you know, it's actually sort of the, you know, the, the landed nobility of the of, of the, the Roman uh, sort of the Roman era. So it's it's understandable. These future people in trying to reconstruct something like classical antiquity would make mistakes. Right. And so I like to do I like to do stuff like that. There's uh, Hadrian will frequently uh, relate the story of uh, Pandora's cat right? Which is, which is the Pandora's box story merged with the Schrodinger's cat story because there's a box and you don't know, right? And, uh, and, and messing with stuff like that is, uh, is very entertaining for me, right? Uh, But I also, the book is playing this perfectly seriously, right? (laughs) At the same time. Uh, And so that sort of thing is fun.
0: That is, I I think that's so fun. And I, I, I'm, Envious is the wrong word, but I find myself at least very much gl- very glad that you have the the knowledge and the gift to kind of weave the tradition in and out like that. Uh, I, my writing tends to be much more on the the critic side where I'm doing reviews and evaluating and trying to kind of highlight some of those things. It's really fun to kind of hear what does that sound like in the author's mind as you're as really this this sounds almost more like a, a form of play than anything else where you're just playing in this giant sandbox of literary tropes and figures and out of everything that's come before you're making your thing. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah,
1: that's, that's basically right. And I, and I try to think of, you know, sort of all of the the things that have influenced me equally in that respect. Right. You know, I will uh, you know, I, I will homage a, you know, some more famous bits from, science fiction and sort of redo them or do things differently, right? A scene might be familiar in a certain way, but it might end differently or something like that. Uh, Cause like we've all done this, right? We're all watching a movie or we're reading a book and we're like, Oh, I would have liked it if, you know, we turned left instead of right. Right. And in being a writer, you have an opportunity to do that sort of thing. Right. You know, you know, that star Wars is pretty good, but it would have been better if this had happened, uh, you know, is I think where a lot of us, you know, get our start, right. Wanting to do this kind of thing. Uh, you know, we, we get sort of transported, you know, to these, these wonderful magical worlds and, um, we have different instincts, you know, as, as individuals and, um, being able to, um, you know, sort of use that critical faculty, uh, but to address those criticisms in a sort of purely constructive way by building something new is, uh, is something that's very fun for me.
0: Ah, oh, wonderful. Well, let's, let's get into some of that, uh, some of the ways that you were doing that, at least in in my opinion, that I think you were doing that in uh, particularly volume four here, Kingdoms of Death, cool. uh, the most recent one that I've read. I'm looking forward to Ashes of Man, uh, next, uh, I guess hopefully, uh, ne- yeah, next month. Uh, we're recording this uh, Thanksgiving week. Um, when in Kingdoms of Death, there were four groups that kind of struck out to me, Um one I'm just going to include for, for context sake, but uh, one of these is not a human civilization, but the other three are all in some way human, but you depict two of them as really different from the human civilization. Uh, you mentioned one already. We've got the C. Elson. Uh, these are the clearly other civilization, which um, I at least saw some echoes of uh, Orson Scott Card's attempt to uh, talk about the, the Formics or the Buggers uh, and, and really something truly different. You, you went to great pains to make sure I knew as the reader that, uh, there is no way that the humans can really communicate truly with the Cielson. There can't be peace. There can't be a lasting diplomatic solution here because these are two mutually exclusive species. Um, but then we've got the extra who I think are the, uh, sort of the transhumanists who have, uh, these, these are sort of, uh, the, uh, we will upload our consciousness to better bodies or we will augment our bodies and they're to the extent that they they there's always this question from Hadrian and others in the the Solon Empire about whether or not the extracellarians remain human uh, at the point where you can you don't breathe oxygen and you don't reproduce naturally are you still human uh, if you've given yourself all these powers and so on both of those were were familiar to me from the previous books, but the new one in book four was the Lothrian Commonwealth. Uh, that was that was kind of fun, where it's like all of a sudden we were in like space communism, um, and and they seem to be presented as sort of subhuman, that there was something bestial in the way that uh, these Lothrians have have failed to live up to uh, what the how they should be living. Uh, And then we've got a couple passages where Hadrian directly reflects on the Solon Empire as being neither beyond human or below human, but the actual way that humanity ought to live. And it seemed to kind of situate that in such a way that um, for all that the Solon Empire is sort of a, it's an empire, it's imperialist, it's bureaucratic, it's at times oppressive. Um, There is a form of uh, inherent class division between the long livers and the people who don't get access to the life-preserving medicines and all that stuff. It's still the best place for human living. Now, I kind of I say all that to kind of set up a discussion in a moment of of uh, Lewis's abolition of man. But I want to pause there. Have I understood your structure correctly? Is that is that a right reading of what you were setting up in those different groups?
1: Yeah, more, more or less, right? I, so I'm not a utopian, right? So like none of these places are, you know, uh, sort of ideal, right? Um, but I do think that living in the empire is preferable uh, personally. To living, you know, obviously living with the Sialsin is not possible; they would eat me, uh, you know. But uh, certainly preferable to to living among the extras or um, or the Lothrians or or really, you know, maybe most of the other civilizations. Each of the the cultures, human or otherwise, uh, that I've got in the series, right, is you um, know is 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 going forward in what I think is is a wrong direction in some way, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's it's in a way that's interesting, right? At least I hope is interesting. Um, you know the, uh, the the commonwealth right is is sort of hyper maoist for example uh they are trying really really hard to uh get rid of not just the the four olds of, of maoism right but uh, but uh, all of the old stuff they're trying to get rid of human biology itself e but in a certain way right by abolishing sort of biological inequalities mm-hmm. right uh, and they've done this through sort of um, genetic manipulation and cloning and and things like that. Um, and, uh, and so that's a sort of a, a, peripheral plot point in, in the series, really. It's not the, the main thrust. We're dealing with the aliens mostly, but, um, but that doesn't seem desirable to me, right? Um, because it turns out that you can't abolish inequality without, you know, really, you know, murdering a lot of people. That's not great. Uh, you and, know, um, and, and that's, you know, not a surprise either, right? Uh, you know, history being what it is. And the extracellarians are certainly, you know, transhuman in, um, you know, in, in, at least in 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 one way, there are a lot of different ways to be, you know, uh, transhumanists, right? The empire itself is right mm-hmm. uh, with their sort of caste system, right? The the nobility the empire they appear human, right? Uh, you know, they are uh, sort of the products of generations of uh, eugenic, you know, uh, you know, design and breeding, uh, but they've been so over designed that they they can't reproduce naturally either, right? Um, This is an artifact of state control as well, because the emperor maintains the controls on who gets to have non-malformed children among the aristocracy. And this is how that sort of, you know, the juvenile uh, high-low versus middle is achieved, right, is by keeping a lock on the middle's uh, access to uh, genetic destiny. Right. Which is also like not pleasant. Right. That's not a that's not a formula that uh, uh, a lot of us would want to accept either. Right. Uh, But the empire has at least, uh, you know, it's it's peasant population who do live human lives as we would recognize them and as would be recognizable to humanity for the last 20 centuries, at least. Right. Uh, Certainly for the last like five, you know, they live somewhere in maybe between. Uh, like eighteenth and twenty first century uh, you know living standards, like they might have some access to technology. But for most of these people, it's kind of a it's kind of more of a star Wars situation than a Star Trek one. like you're you're living in a hovel somewhere, but you might have uh, not a robot because those are illegal, but uh, you might have some you know hologram projectors or something like that. but you are still a person, and the peasants at least uh, have normal human bodies, normal human lifespans mm-hmm. you know uh, and biological functions and things like that.
0: Excellent. Well, as, as I was reading it, it, it seemed to me that there was some tie to uh, Lewis's abolition of man. I know that's what ultimately kind of started our conversation today. Uh, I reached out and asked if you had, if you had read that one, and uh, you, you mentioned you had in college. And uh, so I thought it might be kind of fun to um, see if we could explore that. Um, just in case we have anybody who uh, tuned in and is not familiar with C.S. Lewis's abolition of man, I'll, I'll preface this with a couple quick comments. Um, Lewis delivered The uh, the Abolition of Man as a series of three lectures uh, in 1943. He published those the following year, 1944, in Great Britain, and then they were published in America in 1947. Um, uh, Lewis was mildly disappointed at the result of The Abolition of Man. Uh, he wanted lots and lots of people to read it, um, and it both of the editions that... Uh, were printed did sell out almost overnight, so it was a it was a rapid bestseller. Uh, but there was not a lot of chatter about it that Lewis heard. Um, but really, in the seventy years since then, uh, since this was since these lectures were were composed, um, seventy to eighty or eighty years now, almost eighty years, uh, Lewis is this is the kind of the text that people go back to when they want to look at what is Lewis saying philosophically. Uh, we know where to go to for Lewis's children's works. That's Narnia. Uh, for his adult fiction, that's either the Ransom Trilogy or maybe his novel, Till We Have Faces. He has endless essays and apologetics works. But when people want to think about Lewis and philosophy, The Abolition of Man is the primary go-to. Um, it's a it's a fascinating reflection on human nature, and uh, Christopher, I'm looking forward to your thoughts on it. So uh, uh, let, let's start with just kind of uh, loosely, what are your – do you see – do you see abolition man as an influence on kind of your work in, in, uh, in the sun eater or are those really disconnected?
1: Um, increasingly yes, but at the beginning, uh, no, I don't think I'd read it when I wrote the first book at all. Uh, I think I read it sometime when I was uh, working on the second one. Cause I think it's in the second one that I, I, I call out, uh, uh men with our chests explicitly. Um, but, um, but he is, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of, had a lot of the same thoughts going uh, on for a long time. I think because uh, I'd, read, I'd read Dune, right, which is very skeptical of artificial intelligence, more or less as an excuse to tell a very human story in the far future, right? Because you need to find a way to explain away technological progress sometimes to the science fiction writer. Uh, but I, um, I found that his skepticism, Frank Herbert's skepticism of uh, artificial intelligence, was, uh, you know, uh, particularly and increasingly concerning, right? Uh, Just because we are living, you know, in a world in a time where these are things that the powers that be are kind of pushing pretty hard, right? Uh, You know, there's a bit in Dune fairly early on where uh, he makes it very clear that it wasn't that robots took over Terminator style, right? And, and, uh, you know, tried to kill everybody. It's that people used machines to control society, and that was unacceptable right and that is certainly the world that we live in right so we're living in uh precisely the sort of pre-butlerian jihad uh times that frank herbert is is talking about um you know uh, now i have some other issues with with herbert as sort of a philosopher but this started getting me uh away from thinking having a robot hand like luke skywalker would be cool right uh, because it you know it introduces a lot of problems especially if you start plugging the hardware into your brain uh, because we aren't, you know, um, you know, just programs that are running, you know, on flesh hardware. That's, that's not what a person is. And so you can, uh, you know, by influence the hardware, you can really destroy the identity of a person in, in pretty serious ways. This is one of those things Spider-Man 2 uh, did much better than, you know, most other uh, science fiction stories The Doc Ock, right? And um, so I um, was very, very skeptical of, um transhumanism basically uh, because i was a dune fan um and uh only became more skeptical as time went on and um and this sort of uh, and so i only really came to lewis later because i'd never really been a fan as a kid right um which i know is like not i know that's not cool to say but i uh, i mentioned this before we started recording right i had a pathological dislike of talking animals as a child right? Uh, Especially if they, like, wore clothes and did human things. Like, Red Wall was not acceptable to me. Uh, Just on principle, I couldn't do the, like, mice dressing up in in tabards and brandishing swords. And so Narnia didn't appeal to me. And so I kind of, you know, like, oh, Lewis is fine. I'm going to stick with Tolkien. Uh, You know, I'll stay over here. So, uh, and that put me off reading um, him kind of in general for a long time, which I get is dismissive and kind of dumb. But I encountered um, *Abolition of Man* much later, and uh, it rang quite true for me. It was exactly the sort of thing I was looking for. So it's um, something I've sort of come into alignment with more over time.
0: Oh, fantastic! And I think that's that's. I I think we've all probably got prejudices against certain authors from when that we either encountered at the wrong age or that uh, we just weren't quite ready to hear from yet. I think there's. Um, there, there's a lot of folks that I've kind of come back to as I'm much older, and now I'm like, oh, I get what this author is doing. This is far more interesting than I thought it was. I'd sort of dismiss them when I was younger. Um, but I'm glad Lewis was helpful. Um, I love The Abolition of Man. I think uh, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a crucial piece for, uh, even as you were describing it, I think that so much of what I've heard people talking about in the last six months about problems with big tech, with disinformation, with controlling narrative and with uh, the way uh, technology sort of promises freedom. But as you get used to that freedom, uh, there's an awful lot of freedom my phone gives me. But man, am I giving my data away to anyone and everyone under the sun. And I'm also training my brain to be used to these dopamine rushes that I get when it dings and notifications come through. And I'm surrendering freedom to someone else at the same time. And uh, Lewis, as far as I know, is the first one to have a really good insight that, like, all this rapid technology is can be really useful, but we can also really harm ourselves with it. Well, let's let's walk through some of the major pieces of Abolition of Man, and, uh, um, and we'll just kind of do this kind of, I guess, mutual commentary style, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll we'll move on to a different section here in a second. But um, Lewis opens with a discussion, not of technology and not of doomsday predictions, but instead about the uh, the problems he has with a uh, an early high school English textbook that uh, he gives a pseudonym, the Green Book, and he uh, he doesn't want to indict the actual authors, uh, so he calls them Gaius and Titius, uh, and he's particularly concerned about waterfalls and sublimity and and Coleridge, so. Uh, Christopher, what what's going on in the in the opening? How does that how does that set up the book?
1: Yeah, so of course this is a form of technology, right? Because books are, but ideas are tools too, right? And um, and so he's talking about the the tendency of these educators in particular, but but you know by uh, uh, metonymy, right? Uh, kind of all uh you know this trend in, in in education uh where he's talking about this famous story with samuel taylor coleridge right um in these two observers at a waterfall and one of them describes the waterfall as sublime and the other one says it's pretty right and coleridge thought that the first person was correct and the second person was stupid uh you know uh, and uh, and the the textbook is saying well um you know, this is silly on Coleridge's part because these two people are just stating their opinion. And, you know, um, all that they're really doing is conveying their internal responses. They're not saying anything about objective reality at all. And this is something that you encounter, you know, especially, you know, you're a critic, right? So people are just like, Well, that's just your opinion, right? You know, it's not that this star new Star Wars movie was actually bad. You're just, you know, not the right person for it. Uh, as if there couldn't actually just be an actually bad Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. in the same way that the water, oh, uh, you know, the waterfall is sublime, right? Uh, but um, Lewis is saying, right, that um, you know, oh, you, if you go down this path, right, then there is actually no such thing as objectivity. Um, there's no such thing as an objective world, and you're actually just training the next generation to be basically blind to. Uh, you know, objective value, and that this is a very different form of education that has been carried out for the past, you know, thousands of years, right, uh, and so what are we doing, what are we doing to young people, uh, you know, and he, he says he doesn't think these teachers are malicious, uh, I personally um, think that might be a little too charitable, uh, personally, <laughs> uh, because, you know, we've seen, we're, we're a few decades, you know, further down the road at this point, And we've seen how, uh, this kind of thinking has progressed to the point basically where people, uh, not only can they not have arguments, right. I don't or know how to formulate them, but they, they don't actually believe that values exist, right. You know, most of the people I interact with think that everything is just a matter of opinion, um, everything. And that is, no way to conduct a society uh but it's also no way to like exist um you know you you can't actually and this is precisely right what the whole point of the abolition of man is about right i, I think most of the people i you know i speak to have already been abolished uh you know in a, to a certain degree right they um you know they they really are as the meme goes you know consuming product and getting excited for next product right then uh, you know but i may be getting a, a little bit ahead of myself and away from the waterfall here
0: um, well i know but i think you're you're right to kind of go ahead and look at like i it, it's there's when i introduce this book to students they they usually are frustrated with how it doesn't really seem unified and but i think they have trouble perceiving the unity of lewis's thought because of exactly what you just said because they don't really they don't realize just how relativized their own thinking has been in comparison to somebody like Lewis, who um, not only is he writing this 80 years ago, uh, but he's also a supremely logical thinker Uh, and that, that he is a supreme heir to Aristotle in the sense that like, if Lewis can be convinced of something logically, it must be true. And, and so if the premises are sound and the terms are true or I'm sorry if the terms are clear and the premises are, are valid, then the conclusion has to be true. And Lewis is quite happy to own that and is, that's, that's part of what makes him such a clear writer. So I think our, my students see this and they don't they should be they should be thoroughly convicted <laughs> by it, but they're not. Uh, so instead they fixate on the fact that he seems to jump around. But I think you're right to go ahead and and like look at his conclusion because he's he does indict us. Um, I'll only add that um, I think Lewis is, Lewis is looking at uh, the lack of objective value in the 1940s. Uh, if we were to update the argument for the 2020s, um, the thing that immediately le- leaps to my mind is we've lost the even the objectivity of language and the objectivity of gendered language. Uh, We've lost the ability to use pronouns in a sensible way because we now feel some in the same kind of way that um, Gaius and Titius go out of their way to be kind of kind to the guy who has the alternate interpretation. We have a false understanding of kindness that motivates the misuse of pronouns uh, for somebody else's sensibilities rather than a a highest concern being truth in the communication that we use and the way that we use words. So that that Lewis is looking at the objectivity and subjectivity of values. We're, we're much further down that road today, I think, than than we were then. Um, I want to jump into uh, to education as well, because Lewis, you mentioned uh, the way Lewis is, is sort of generous and charitable to these teachers. Um, I think that's. Uh, I, I'm just going to side with Lewis on uh, saying I think there are a lot of teachers uh, in schools who contribute to these problems, but they do so very unwillingly, or at least unwittingly. Um, they they don't know that they're doing that. But I'm sure that's true. I
1: didn't I didn't mean to imply otherwise. Oh yeah um- yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I just, there's a, there's, I have this instinct, instinct in me to, to defend teachers for better or for worse. yeah no, no, no.
1: I, I didn't mean to imply otherwise, but this is so endemic in people's thinking, right? It's, it's every, it's every part of the language now is mm-hmm. sort of up for debate, right? It's, it's adjectives, it's, yeah. you know, it's verbs, right? It's everything. Uh, and nothing means anything except what you mean it to mean right? Uh, would, which is yeah. exactly what he gets to later on, right? This is, you know um uh, you know when he talks about these people who uh exercise uh you know power over nature right actually all they've got left is you know whatever gratifies their immediate urges right uh, and that's you know the the urge to avoid you know uh embarrassment right uh, you know the uh to to uh rectify offense uh you know these sorts of things as well as to gratify various desires right that's sort of really all that the public square is at this point is, is people trying to sort of protect the, their emotional integrity, right. And the integrity of their internal world against other people's uh, what they perceive as other people's internal worlds, which may be, you know, what they're fighting, but it, they may be fighting object, you know, objective reality in certain cases too. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's huge. And it, it goes right back to where Part of it, Lewis gives such clear visions of at least two different ideas of education. Where on the one hand, the uh, the group of people that he he puts Gaius and Titius in this group, he calls the innovators, where they're they're people who are trying to innovate around traditional values, and their innovation is usually an innovation of redefinition and of um, today we would call we would say this is somewhere in like progressive education where they're. They're always trying to get away from what's old and to what's what's new. And where that kind of education is sort of bringing students immediately into the present without any concern to what's been done before, he contrasts that with what he calls sort of uh, uh, the, his, his metaphor for this is old birds teaching young birds how to fly. <laughs> where, where there's something about whatever education is for, it's something that has always been about, older humans who already understand something true about how to live, that they learned experientially and intellectually from previous humans, that we pass these on to the next generation. Um, I actually think you gave us a really good example of that when you were describing um, what you're doing in in writing and how everything you've read and everything you've thought about is sort of you're always drawing on to create your own world. I, I, that seems to me to be a great illustration of, uh, of really the literary craft is not you don't learn to write a novel by just sitting by yourself and trying really hard to do something that's never been done before. You're actually standing on the shoulders of giants and you're spinning threads into a new shape, but you get those threads from previous stories and previous authors. And it it seems to me that that, that really is what education ought to be. But increasingly schools are kind of focused on how do we be relevant and how do we be contemporary and how do we get kids to be really concerned about the very, the immediate present.
1: Yeah, this is something I think you see a lot in in English classes and in like English programs, right? Because I think, uh, especially the university level, I think that the English faculties like don't know what their purpose is anymore. Uh, I think they feel left out because they didn't get particle accelerators and you know laser beam. You know, engineering is getting all the money, uh, which is certainly true. If you you know see the English department, you know, versus the new uh, the new engineering buildings. But uh, in any case, I don't think they know what their purpose is. Is you, you hear a lot of people say, "Well, what's an English degree for?" Well, it's a degree in how to learn, right? No, it's not, right? Uh, that's actually the, the opposite of what. Well, not the opposite of what it is. But that's that's beside the point, right? Uh, It's not a degree in how to learn. You should already, you're in college, you should know how to learn already, right? Uh, You know, what an English degree is for and what literature classes, you know, in high school and before that are for, are to put you in touch with your culture and your tradition. Now, this is difficult when you live in a country that is actually a thousand cultures and traditions, uh, because people feel left out and understandably, uh, how do you, how do you build a center when there is no center and the center cannot hold, right? And this is a big problem that I think English uh, departments have right, um, because people will resonate with certain works, you know, maybe because of their own cultural upbringing and, and not resonate with other ones, or maybe they will not resonate with the ones that are sort of native to them but, and resonate with ones that aren't. It, it's kind of a mess, right, but the point of, you know, the Western canon, right, or, you know, a canon of literature in general, right, is to sort of bring people to uh, to a center, right. And to embed them in a tradition and to teach them to love that tradition, uh, you know, not to hate things that aren't in it necessarily, at least in the context of literature, but this is what education is for. Um, as I think it's, I think it's Aristotle, right. You know, you want to teach people to love the good and and hate what's evil. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, we don't really do that. Um, you know, certain, and then it's partially because, um, it's, people feel weird about pushing values on anybody right um but uh people are always having values pushed on them and if you don't see that yours are, are you know impressed upon the next generation someone else's will be right and uh, and this is sort of why i think this is why education is such a battlefield I, I don't have children yet but so i'm kind of an observer here uh but i'm not too far removed from having been you know a student uh about a decade right but uh you know i it was still my experience right that people really like want to get you to think in their way and that's maybe fine if what they're trying to teach you is to love the good and hate what's evil but it's not clear to me that that's being done um you know because what they're doing instead is teaching you that uh waterfalls aren't pretty actually if you don't think they are which is you know totally totally not true right um if you'll, uh, I know I've rambled on a bit here, but I, I wanted to mention, I went to the Modern Art Museum in New York once. And when I was Thank reading over the questions, I thought about this story. Uh, and I hated it. Uh, you know, I, I don't like modern art, but I went because they had uh, they had Van Gogh and they had Monet. Right. Oh, and sure. uh, I, like, I like Impressionists. It's mm-hmm. about as far forward in painting that I'm willing to go uh, as far as popular movements go. Uh, but I think they're great. So I wanted to go see them uh and because they had, you know starry night was there you know it's a bit cliche but you know how do you not go see that if you know you have a the
0: no can of tomato paint or tomato paste thrown across it I'm assuming
1: yeah there there was not
0: uh, <laughs> at the time
1: but you know most of the most of the museum you know was like Duchamp's dumb you know urinal right and, and bicycle wheel <laughs> and it was a complete waste of time and I noticed walking around everybody you know you're, you're in a public place right people are chattering. Uh, you know, they're on their phones, they're wandering around, kids are jumping on things they shouldn't be jumping on, whatever. Um, I got to the room with the Monets and I didn't realize the water lilies were as huge as they are. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but these paintings are like eight feet tall. They're oh. enormous. They're absolutely massive. And I walk into this room and they're set up in a triptych at the end, right? Sort of like a bay window and they're, they're massive. They basically the only thing in the room, right? And everybody shut up uh, and was looking at them, right. Because they were moved precisely by that quality of sublimity, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. real art needs no demonstrations, right. And you don't need to explain, oh, don't you get it? It's a urinal because like you don't, if it's real art, you don't have to do that. Uh, in the same way that if the waterfall is sublime, you are moved as Lewis says, right. These feelings of veneration, right. And, um, so much of, of what was in that museum was fake, Mm -hmm. right uh, and the, the Monet's weren't, right, uh, and, and you could see that in the way that people respond, nobody questions, you know, Michelangelo's, uh, bona fides, right, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the same way they questioned Duchamp or something like that, I'm going to pick on him, because it's an easy target, uh, but, um, but this is true of, of, uh, of, the Waterfall, too, and this is the thing with the, that, that story, right? right, that, that I think, um, I mean, Lewis, Lewis, you know, Discusses this, but this is the important thing: is that um, those feelings are objective and they're they're not actually arguable, right? Uh, And you can deny them, but you you can't. uh, But they exist anyway. They don't they don't care if you deny them.
0: So, no, that's that's I think that's that's exactly right. What we're dealing with is not your opinion or my opinion, but a statement of what is. And I could be wrong in my statement of what is. But what I'm not wrong about is that I am talking about something outside of myself. I'm not talking about my feelings. If I say that the Monet painting was breathtaking, I'm saying something about the painting. I'm not telling you about my feelings about the painting. And I'm right or I'm wrong about that. I think that's that's Lewis's most helpful insight. Um, he brings that he brings that around. He expands that. I'm glad so glad you mentioned the uh, the Western canon in there too. Um, I think Lewis has that in mind as one of the key places where uh, we learn what he called the Tao. Um, That idea of—I mean, Lewis makes the strong claim, and I think he—I think he demonstrates it. He, he makes it plausible, but he makes the strong claim that reality actually does have objective morals baked into it, and that there are some actions that are good and right, there are some actions that are bad and wrong. And his proof for this is the fact that if you go back and look at antiquity, and he lays about six different civilizations side by side and argues that they all point to the basically the same moral principles in different religious and philosophical ethical texts. And he uses that to say, we all know basically what's right and what's wrong. And there's going to be some variation across cultures, but there is no traditional culture that says a a child should hit his father. That's that's basic. You know that you owe respect to your parents. Um, no culture can survive that says stealing is optional because it might be okay in this circumstance. Every culture has to say this action is objectively wrong. Um, I think you're, what you're bringing out is a great illustration of the Tao and that there there is something about that, that Monet saw something and he conveyed something true that speaks to people who, who see that painting. And it's, there's something about the reality there uh, that if I fail to appreciate that reality, that's a flaw in me. It doesn't mean that I should then go around and say, oh, well, you know, art is all subjective. And since I didn't see that Monet is great, we should take down Monet because he's really a poser. Like that's, that that's a flaw in me. I'm ill-educated. I have not, I have not gained the ability to rightly appreciate the beauty that has presented itself before me.
1: Yeah, and and you know we all have these deficiencies, right? Lewis says that he doesn't like, uh, you know, kids, right? Uh, he doesn't like he doesn't like hanging out with them, uh, you know. And he, he says this is you know a deficiency in him, right? Because you know you should be able to be the sort of person who can be a parent, right? uh you know um or you know be you know an uncle or whatever right uh and and so you know it, it is okay to have you know personal failings right you know there's some uh there some artists that just i i just don't like right you know or some forms of music that i i don't like right uh and maybe i'm wrong you know um maybe i'm not you know i like to think i'm not but uh <laughs> you know but but sure right just as examples, um, and. Um, People have sort of moved to thinking that they just must be right, right? Um, because you know, De Gustibus non disputandum, right? Um, and just because you you know can't necessarily you know reason with people aesthetically, right, about the waterfall or whatever, doesn't mean they're not wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly doesn't mean that ethically, right? Talking about the Tao, right? Um, you know, obviously, you can make the sort of Christian formulation this argument, right? Which is just that you know the the God's law is written on all of our hearts, right? Regardless of whether or not we know it's there. Um, but you can make a, I think, um, a, a sort of materialist argument for this too, which is that we're all basically, uh, you know, the same right? As a species. Now there are obvious differences, right? Uh, between, uh, the sexes, for example, um, you know, between, uh, people at different, you know, stages of development, you know, different ages, um, between, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, kin groups and things like that, obviously, right. You know, there are um, sort of, you know, genetic and cultural and teratogenic tendencies, right. That, that different cultures and peoples and, um, you know, um, have, but we're still way, 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 way more similar than different, right? Um, You know, so there are, you know, these sort of deep threads of commonality that exist cross-culturally. You know, that's the sort of thing that like jung uh is interested in right and now like Jung, you know isn't isn't you know right on the money all the time but there is still this sort of you know the, the, is the doubt right uh, lewis's down right um uh, which is perhaps not the same thing as the the Taoist Tao Dao, but it, it's you know it's it's gesturing it's gesturing at this sort of um it, at natural law right
0: uh, <clears throat> which and let, let's follow that thread for just a second because lewis does i mean he uh, he, he does borrow a, a Chinese term, the, the Tao, from Taoism to name a traditional Western concept of natural law. Uh, now, you could certainly read that as sort of cultural appropriation. I don't think we have to, uh, in part because the Tao Te Ching begins with the phrase, the Tao that is named is not the Tao. <laughs> the, the very nature of the Taoist Tao is that it's not something you can rationally comprehend. Um so Lewis is going to borrow that name. I think he's doing that in a way to show the inclusivity of the Tao. Uh he wants to say, he wants to argue this applies to all people. This is part of our intellectual inheritance as as humanity. That we I, all I think it serves to...
1: a double purpose too. Sorry. Um no, go ahead. Uh I, and that's that there is this tendency, I think, in Westerners' right to uh, see things that are outside of our culture as shinier in a certain way and I think that um, I think that if he had just called it natural law the whole time right that uh, a bunch of people would have dismissed it as um, as sort of eurocentric right His point is eurocentric mm-hmm. uh, sure. uh, or just been turned off by it because it's too Christian or or something like that right And so I think by using uh, sort of an exonym, Right. For, uh, you know, for natural law here, Uh, he generalizes it in a way um, that I think might actually be particularly effective for uh, modern audiences who might uh, have a kind of new age tendency in them, whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, And so there, I think, is something that's sort of appealing to it for that reason, Uh, appealing to his choice of terms uh, for that reason as well.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's a great insight uh there there's so much of there's so much we could go into the Dow in, in, in a lot of a lot of detail um the only thing i wanted to get in on that point was that um i think there's also something uh i'm i'm teaching a 7th grade grammar class this year uh sort of by an accident of our schedule that that one fell to me and um uh, i it's got me i i'm a i'm a literature history guy by background i'm terrible with languages my wife is the classicist of the two of us she's great with latin and good with greek uh, i'm i'm not but being in a position of having to teach children comma rules and verb tenses and all those things that all of us learned, and I'm very grateful to Mrs. Dunleavy and my mom, and probably half a dozen other literature teachers over the years who forced me to learn grammar. Uh, but being back in that context has reminded me that there are, we're not dealing with suggestions when it comes to grammatical rules. When you're talking about subject verb agreement, when you're talking about the way an object relates to the thing that it is its object, whether that's a verb or a preposition, um, these aren't suggestions. This literally is the way language works. (laughs) When we're trying to show possession, this isn't just the way some random English grammarian a thousand years ago decided that we would show possession. No, this literally is how language functions, which seems to me to be another Point of support to Lewis's idea that there is an objective reality that we interact with. I mean, Lewis is looking at that primarily from an ethical basis and from a values basis. Uh, we've discussed that also in terms of aesthetics, but I think we could also add a linguistic basis there. That the fact that your work as an author uh, is like can't your it can be translated into other languages, and I assume has been at this point. Yeah. Uh, so that that can you can come up with the perfect metaphor in English and it can still communicate maybe to a lesser degree in Polish, but it can still communicate because language functions in a way that none of us originated. Language itself transcends cultures as well.
1: Yeah. Well, there's certainly, you know, ideas, uh, you know, that are held in common, right? The thing about it though, I think this is where people uh, will start to raise raise flags about you know language and objectivity right is there are lots of different ways to convey that objectivity right uh it's not like math where two and two you know are four basically all the time right unless you're doing some weird math uh you know uh and so um you know when when they they, because people will inevitably contrast You know language arts right and math because that's the two opposing subjects that we had growing up right and so they see they see math is very it's very you know dialed in because two and two is four right in a way that like sentence construction is a lot more play in the joints uh, to it right and so i think that people because of that tend to think that there is no such thing as objective meaning because well math is objective right uh you know in a way that a language appears not to be so i think people raise their hackles uh at that and i'm not saying that i am i just i do think this is maybe a post- no, you're
0: you're absolutely right like <laughs> as I'm that's that's a shelf upstairs but i've got a stack of post structuralist books that would disagree with everything i just said i mean that, yeah i broadly
1: agree with you i uh, i do think we need to make sure that we recognize that there's a lot of latitude right but the basic idea like that there are nouns and verbs right like you're talking at like that level
0: right yeah 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 i'm just talking like I'm, yeah. I'm certainly. I'm not trying to obviate anything with the need yeah. for translation, and I'm a big fan of Gadamer, who argues that translation is always an act of interpretation. So we always need new translations because language communicates differently in different moments. Like that's, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. But I think there's something about the very fact that I would, I would tack this back to. Um, the Greek Stoic insight of the logos that the Apostle John appropriates for when he uh, names Jesus as the logos, but that the universe is itself uh, linguistically comprehensible. And so when we are using language, we are actually tapping into that function of the universe and that there's just something mind-blowingly amazing about the fact that we as humans can talk about a tree in maybe 12 different languages and we're still talking about the exact same thing. And, and we can all comprehend each other. Uh, Tolkien has this great line about, uh, in his poem, Mythopoeia, about um, uh, language moving from mind to mind. I mean, that just the, the idea of words being able to carry meaning from across time and space to different people. And still, almost all of that meaning arrives that that too i think is a is just a point to suggest there is something objectively real that we're talking about it's not all i cannot subjectively coin a word but at the same time i don't want to be so stuck on the objectivity of language that i ignore the fact that language clearly changes and people use it in all kinds of ways so there's 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 an objectivity and subjectivity that sort of mixes there but i don't want to ignore the objectivity of linguistic structures.
1: Yeah, but like meaning is still conserved, right? Even when the words change, right? Um, They're still describing some underlying thing, right? Whether, you know, we're, uh, you know, I I can't think of another language's word for tree right now. Uh, But, um, you know, whether or not, whether we're talking about water or agua, right? Or some slang term for water, right? Uh, You know, it's still the same thing, right? That, That relationship is preserved in some way. Uh, you know, uh, because, yeah, no, I, I, I do agree with you. Um,
0: well, let's let's take this into kind of uh, Lewis's third essay where he sort of, in the first essay, he's focusing mostly on education. The second one, he's working out the, the DAO. It's in the third essay that he literally titles The Abolition of Man, that he sort of goes into a bit more thinking about, uh, he has a new group of people he calls the conditioners. He thinks about specific applications of technology, he names the telephone, the uh, newly invented aeroplane, and contraception as as all three examples of technology. What does Lewis think about technology, and how does it kind of tie into this concept of the abolition of man?
1: Well, it's this it's this question about mastering nature, right? Um, you know, we're using we're using technology to overcome uh you know either external challenges or sort of internal deficiencies as we perceive them right with with human nature right uh you know we can't fly for example right we can't talk to people on the other side of the planet oh wait yes we can right uh and all of our technology is sort of scaffolding some lack in some way right and he is you know talking and, and especially when he gets to talk about you know contraception right this is overcoming a pretty basic function of human biology right um to serve our sort of our our sort of whims, right uh our you know our desires our convenience you know whatever uh you know that may be right whether that's talking to someone in Tokyo or not having a kid for the next five years right uh and that we're using technology to to basically you know engage in this transhuman project right we are trying to get away from our animal nature right and in talking about the conditioners, right, he's talking about these people who are trying to do precisely that, right? Uh, it's the sort of, you know, it's the scientists, it's the politicians, it's the, you know, uh, influencers and thought leaders, right, who are trying to sort of direct, uh, you know, uh, human evolution, broadly speaking, in a sense, um, in in this direction and uh, to overcome the limitations of what being human means, right? um and you know this is obviously a doomed project in certain certain respects but this is i think this is i think where i come in right this is where i think the science fiction stuff comes in because um you know i the, the version of abolition of man i had uh, included the great divorce at the beginning right mm-hmm. and in the preface to that he talks about how oh i got the idea for this because i read this science fiction story that i can't remember right and so the you know the sort of application of science fiction here right to philosophy Right. To, uh, you know, uh, to the imagination, to this, this transhuman project, right. Uh, you know, uh, you can't really be understated. Right. Science fiction writers, uh, not me, uh, like to flatter themselves by saying that they're building the future. Right. And they like to point to uh, the star trek communicator right inspiring the cell phone which is mm-hmm. which is true and i always laugh at it because the smartphone is so far past the star trek communicator that it didn't actually predict the future in any meaningful way because we won't be using flip phones when we have warp drive if we ever have warp drive right so <laughs> science fiction writers you know a little 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 squirrely on the details but uh but it is true right that the stories that we tell right um do impact people. Right. And, uh, I may be straying a little bit from the main topic here a little bit, but, um, but the fact that so many people who are conditioners, right. Who are working in, you know, biotech, for example, right. Mm-hmm. Or, or technology generally were inspired to do that because they, you know, watched star Trek, right. Uh, is, is something that I, think about a lot. And I think is one of the reasons why I have taken the particular tack that I have uh, in my own writing, which while being very much a part of the tradition of science fiction literature is very much against a lot of those currents, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, not only am I skeptical about robots because of the Terminator, right? I'm skeptical of robots because of the smartphone, right? You know, uh, I've been trying to use my phone less and I keep finding that it's in my pocket exactly like the damn ring uh over and like over and over right uh I just heard it ringing on in the chair over there, and I thought it was downstairs right uh and and uh a lot of science fiction writers would just sort of scoff at that right uh and it's because they are they are part of this project, right they don't see a problem with it um you know um the you know people like the, they'll, they'll say the thing about oh having a smartphone makes you a cyborg right you know you have all these functions augmenting your base functions and like actually maybe it's destroying my base functions because mm. i'm getting a lot less done as you said right um and so science fiction i think uh you know is really useful as a tool uh to explore a lot of this stuff but i also think it, it's part of the project in a certain way i think it's it's contributing to the conditioning uh, and that's something that worries me so as a writer
0: well no that 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 makes sense I think uh maybe some of that is why uh Lewis uh opens his novel that hideous strength uh directly in the introduction linking it back to the abolition of man where he uh, the abolition of man is sort of his philosophical essay style lecture based approach of analyzing huge problems he sees in society but uh, he wrote he published that hideous strength I believe in 1946 so two years later he'd sort of worked those ideas out in the form of a 300 page novel and there I think he uh, he definitely he too found science fiction a really helpful form uh, though I will just also go on record saying uh, that hideous strength is possibly the least science fiction novel I have ever read that uh, is is sold as science fiction i mean it's got a picture of the moon split light and dark on the front of most editions uh but it's 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 weird sci-fi not in the uh lovecraftian sense of the weird but weird in that it's uh it's metaphysically complex and it's more medieval than it is like far futurist far future but he um in there at least his vision of the conditioners i think is a little different than what you're describing But I think what you're describing definitely does kind of play into that idea of of we are being shaped by the technology. Um, In Lewis's thought, the conditioners are sort of the folks who go one step past the innovators, where the innovators were those teachers who are like Gaius and Titius, who are sort of innovating around old school, old fangled traditional ideas. The conditioner overtly throws away the old value scale. And he says he's going to intentionally shape Humanity. And Lewis says, okay, to what end? To what end are you shaping humanity? And he argues that basically the conditioner will throw away the old value scale, but he cannot operate without a value scale because all of these innovations are to some point, to some purpose. And so functionally, the conditioner becomes, uh, Lewis sort of imagines an innermost circle of conditioners who are sort of kind of like that uh, trope of. Maybe two or three head honchos deciding which news story is going to be on every news feed sure. uh, on a given day. Like they're the ones who are going to control everything. Um, and then he sort of then imagines how that they could then shape humanity going forward. He sort of uh, this is where Abolition of Man gets very dystopian. And he has he has an institute called the 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 Nice the N I C E the National Institute for Coordinated Efforts. It's a terrible acronym (laughs) in that hideous strength uh, where they they're kind of working this out. But the idea is that uh, this group, this innermost circle of people will uh, basically have a pure psychology, a total administrative state, and they will be able to, and they will have abolished the family. So given those three principles, they will shape the next generation forever. And once they've got that generation shaped, that they've changed human history from that point in time forward. So they they can the abolition of man then is the idea that we will we actually could gain the ability to change our own future, but we've done that in such a way that we've removed our own nature. Uh, so this is where I think I see so much parallels with uh, your extraterrestrials and in there that like uh, and and a lot of this comes into. Um, questions of contemporary questions of gender. I mean, if we, if we, this were the, the back to the Lothrians uh, and that, that kind of subplot that you inserted. I mean, if, if we could abolish gender, if we could abolish all gender roles, and if we could handle reproduction through a VAT, uh, which has been a long held radical feminist dream that we could, we could do reproduction without women and then free women from reproduction. And then if the state could could raise children in its values what would be the result? And this, this is Lewis's sort of dystopian nightmare. (laughs) It's, it's pretty bleak.
1: Yeah, I do. I do think to a certain extent though, that the conditioning has already happened, right? I, I, the the society that we live in, right? And have lived in really, at least as long as I've been alive is in a lot of ways, already totally divorced from the past in the way that he describes, Right. right? Most people, uh, you know, I, I was, I was sort of laughing reading it. Right. And he, uh, and maybe it was actually in great divorce when he enumerates, it is in great divorce when he, they're talking about going to see Napoleon pacing in his mansion in hell. Um, there's a throwaway reference to uh, a bunch of other people that you might could go see down in the gray city. Right. And he, uh, lists Tamerlane. Right. I don't know basically anyone except me who knows who that is. Right. Uh, in my personal life. Right. Obviously people do. Right. Uh, but this used to be, you know, a, a sort of uh, staple figure in sort of historical consciousness, right. Uh, you know, Timur the lame, right. Uh, you know, was, um, you know, Turkic emperor from what the 15th century, I think post-Mongol, uh, nobody, nobody knows. Right. Uh, you know, and this is something too, right. Right. I, I was reading a bunch of old time magazine articles and they were constantly making Homeric allusions, and people are out of touch with you know, this sort of cultural tradition already. And so the past for a lot of the people that I, I you know, speak to on a day-to-day basis is already dead. Uh, and so when you affect that change, right, that is part of of the conditioning already, you know, happening, right? When you, you pull people's roots out like that, you can make them really into whatever you want. And it seems to be that the the end product, uh, you know, that we are, we are trying to produce in humanity, right, is just this sort of... Um, You know perfect you know consumer right uh who just you know just picks up new stuff because it's the new thing uh and you know doesn't really think that critically about it or you know you see this with the increase the decreasing quality of superhero films right uh you know uh you know i spoke well of spider-man 2 earlier but i don't have a lot you know nice to say about subsequent you know iterations in the series um but this has continued to worsen but people don't seem bothered by it right Uh, You know, I, for all, uh, you know, the complaining that people do about the drop in quality in Star Wars, for example, which is something that I took very personally, Mm. uh, you know, since I I liked, I grew up with the original three and um, to a lesser extent with the prequels, which are much maligned, but are fine if you're five, which I was, uh, you know, the, um, for all the complaining that we've done about the drop in quality on the new stuff, people still pick it up. Uh, It hasn't seemed to have really hurt the, like, Disney Plus streaming numbers, right? Uh, certainly hasn't impacted their, their revenue that much. Um, and, um, and I think that it's because people, um, don't have a sense of value anymore. So they're able to just short, sure, like I will continue to, you know, eat whatever, uh, the streaming services put out for me. And I think that this is related to this conditioning project, even if it isn't envisioned in this sort of centrally planned, um, you know, master generation, to use a phrase from abolition of man kind of way. I think that it's been happening in a more decentralized uh, uh, and chaotic way, but in a more pernicious way, because I think the Gaius and Titius of the world uh, basically had an exclusive license to write textbooks for the last century. And, um, and I think that that has dissolved. And this is how those, this is how you're talking about your students, not seeing how these things are connected. This is how they're connected, right? The first chapter of abolition of man causes the third, right uh and um and so they're all connected in this in this sort of trajectory this this arc of history uh kind of way right because the idea that history should have an arc at all right that there is such a thing as sort of wig progress uh is an idea right that had to be introduced uh in the process of cutting off the future from the past right um by creating a trajectory for history um you, you Take cultures, times, countries, places, uh, and t- turn them from those things into being a point on a line, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and really, so the trajectory that Lewis is charting in this book, right, is is about is, is about precisely this: by destroying the past, right, you can make the future whatever you want. And we are absolutely mid project, living through that right.
0: And that's would I, I think that's a very that's a very persuasive argument. Uh, I'm reminded of an essay that I read a few weeks ago, and I cannot remember the author's name. Um, he's someone in the National Conservatism conversation. I'll find the uh, I'll try and find the essay and link it uh, in our, our show description. But um, he wrote an essay basically saying that conservatism is dead and we should stop <laughs> talking about it, um, basically making a similar argument in that. Uh, His argument kind of broadly, broadly construed was that uh, the habits of conservatism that traditionalist conservatives have talked about for decades wanting to conserve all presume an agrarian lifestyle and traditional uh, rites of passage and kind of a centered culture that is no longer and has not been for an awfully long time. And we have no we see no signs of it ever coming back. Now, that sparked a lot of debate in conservative circles about uh, whether or not that's a fair analysis, but there's something to it in that. Uh, now I don't I don't know that I'm as uh, pessimistic about this as, as you sound. Uh, but as I think human nature is more resilient. Uh, for, for all that um, I agree with you on the the ways that I think there are there are a lot of companies that have uh, their, their primary goal is to sell products and to make people who will buy their products. And uh, it's pretty distressing to get deep into the weeds of how many companies are funding either research or educational products or projects that are ultimately trying to create more consumers and how many apps are really tailoring themselves and their efforts using some pretty effective psychological tools to create better consumers. I think you're probably right about that but there's still something that there's still something that exists that resists that. I think the the resistance is probably going to be a lot more small pockets of, of communities. I think there's a lot of, uh, this is where the, I see a lot of hope in the classical renewal movement of schools that are uh, an increasing number of schools are defining themselves as uh, screen-free or, or low-tech uh, or schools like mine that are fighting a never ending uphill battle to say, we're going to use tech, but we're going to manage our use of tech. And we're going to teach students, what does moderation mean in a technologically driven society? Um, but there are places that are trying to do that, but I, I don't know that uh, it's probably just the, the real, I see it as futile to say, well, someday this vision of a uh, flourishing humanity that uses tech instead of being used by tech will be the mainstream. I think that will probably always be the minority view. Um, I, I, I don't know, right? You're, you're an
1: optimistic curmudgeon. I think I may be a pessimistic
0: clown. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I Know The name Mark Bauer He, he also came on my show and was the, he was my first, you'll be my second, uh, uh, person who might inspire a, a pessimistic curmudgeon playlist someday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know. Um, but, um, uh, but I do think, um, I, I do think you're not wrong, right? Like human nature is, there is an objective, uh, you know, kernel of human nature, right? And I don't think that it will fall for this indefinitely, right, because the the apparatus, right, that keeps uh, the system running. The, the thing about, the thing where I maybe disagree uh, with Lewis's conclusions, right, is I don't think that the, uh, the, the, the psychology that the conditioners will have is perfect. Mm. Um, uh, I, you know, and I don't think that the master generation he describes uh, will be, you know, total. Maybe they pulled the trigger too soon, uh, you know, uh, or maybe, right, it was always a, you know, progressive process in the sense of, you know, by degree, right? Uh, rather than it, you know, everyone holding their breath until the precise moment to, you know, execute the coup uh, and to destroy the, the heart of, uh, to destroy the human soul. Right, uh, I don't. I don't know that it's all going to happen in one big flash the way that Lewis outlines. I also don't know that a perfect psychology is even achievable.
0: Yeah, um, those but... those are the places to poke at his his reasoning because, and again, this is Lewis the logician. Uh, he sets those up as conditional conditional syllogisms. If we have these, then this could be this would be the result. Uh, in his novel Paralandra, the second novel in the Ransom trilogy, he has a. Um, there's a figure uh, named Weston who is possessed by either a demon or the devil. And uh, between that and a great scene in that hideous strength, uh, Lewis kind of highlights just how uh, the devil is necessarily stupid in that intellectual activity is a positive thing. It's a positive movement. And the devil as both father of lies and the negation of the good doesn't have the apparatus to be intellectually sophisticated. Now that that's not entire. That's kind of a simplistic reading of it because he does have a very. The devil is really, really good at getting uh, people to sin, but Lewis shows the ultimate flaw in. Uh, I mean, in the sense that it's like there's not a there's not a fruitful intellectual endeavor on the demonic side. The demons are all destructive and not constructed, And that ultimately might be maybe another place to kind of point to for hope. Because that if, uh, I mean, if if uh, there's, if these conditioners are going on, if they've robbed themselves of the ultimate true source of value, their project is always going to be a deconstructive project and not a constructive project. And if you're right, so I agree with you. There's, if a perfect psychology is impossible or a perfect manipulative psychology is impossible, then human nature will ultimately drive people to those sources of true value from which they can then always rebuild.
1: Yes. No, I think that's true. But rebuild is the key word. Right. And This is why I'm still saying I'm pessimistic because I don't know how much worse it's going to get. Um, because, um, you know, every every time you, you know, you see a headline, you're like, oh, they can't possibly top this. They'll, they'll find a way. Right. Um, you know, and, um, you know, nuclear war is always on the table. Right. So it, it could get much, much worse.
0: Right. I'll just chime in with our uh this week last week's headlines about the uh the Respect for Marriage Act, which is a complete misnomer, uh, passing the Senate to uh legally or at least to come to the floor where it will pass in the next session. Uh and that uh buried in the text of that bill are a couple of provisions that could make it really, really easy for both poly for polygamy. <laughs> And uh, potentially bigamy to both be legally enshrined, <laughs> like uh, those are those are possible. So I'm, I'm, yeah, those are uh, those were moments where I was just kind of like, oh my goodness, we're we're back. We we've, we've rejected some good achievements of the past, and we're replacing them with a lot of nonsense.
1: I hadn't seen that. I uh, I don't really keep up with uh, current events as much as I used to. It's just been, uh, you go you go
0: blind with sorrow uh it's probably much more productive for 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 your purposes i would expect to uh ignore current events and and be able to write much better stories yeah well there's no
1: there's no there's no surprise in the plot of uh of human history at this point (laughs) i think uh although although truth is always stranger than fiction perversely it's less surprising uh you know i um you know this there's nothing that's come down a headline that's really uh you know surprised me at this point um
0: Christopher, as we're kind of wrapping up towards a, a conclusion to our episode, let's uh, let's go to a a happier note, uh, less on the depressing uh, nature of of reality, and uh, tell us more about your upcoming works. I know you've got a uh, something in either either an anthology you're editing or stories that you've written in the anthology, The World's Long Lost.
1: Yeah, so- uh, John, yeah. prime John, that. Um, in addition to Ashes of Man, next month I've got coming out a collection of um, Xeno archaeology stories called Worlds Ooh. Long Lost that uh, my friend and my replacement as, uh, as editor of Bane Books, Sean here, uh, put together um it's i think about a dozen stories they're all broadly something to do with you know ancient aliens right whether that's finding an ancient you know alien ruin on earth or on some other planet uh, a lot of the stories have a bit of a lovecraftian bent to them for whatever reason you say ancient aliens and people are like oh lovecraft and I'm like okay fair enough uh so we've got I got some of that i've got one of my own stories in there it's set in the universe it's called mother of monsters uh, and it's, uh, it's pretty fun. It's about a, uh, dig site on a Cielson, uh, world, right? So we're digging through their ruins and their ancient history. And, uh, wouldn't you know, there's a bit of a love bed to it. So I'm one of the offenders. Uh, and, uh, it does feature a recurring character, uh, from, the, from the series. Uh, but I won't say which one, it's not the one you're thinking, uh, whoever you are and whatever you're thinking, uh, it's just an unlikely, an unlikely returning face, but it does have one. Um, so that comes out on the 6th. Um, or the 7th, whichever the Tuesday is, I believe the 6th. And uh, Ashes of Man here, as I already said, uh, book five in the series is out on the 13th. Uh, I will, for those of you who are in or around Raleigh, North Carolina, be doing signing at Quail Ridge Books here in Raleigh uh, that day on the 13th at 7 p.m. Um, but uh, they will be available wherever books are sold. Barnes and Noble, uh, you know, Books a Million, I hear they're still around somewhere. Uh, you know, <laughs> We don't have any in my area. I was so delighted yeah. to learn they're still out there. Uh, or your local independent bookstore. Of course, they're on Amazon uh, as well as uh, other places. Uh, it should be out in the UK uh, at the same time. Uh, it has a different cover over there, different publisher. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I do hope uh, folks check that out uh, and uh, enjoy the books. The first one, as I said at the top of the show, is uh, Empire of Silence. It's the first mm-hmm.
0: book. Uh ah. Wonderful. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, you'll get some, some listeners, uh, who will check out those books. Uh, so just so you know, this, this episode will be part of our fourth season. So we're probably looking at a January, February drop. So we won't be, uh, immediately on for, uh, uh for your release, but it'll be, uh, we'll be pretty soon. It's pretty soon thereafter. No worries. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, where can people find and follow your work online?
1: Uh, So my website is uh, solanempire.com. That's S-O-L-L-A-N-Empire.com. It's got a link to uh, what social media accounts I do have. I don't have Twitter, uh, but I am on Facebook. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel as well. A link to that's on the website right at the top. Uh, I do a, uh, you know, a live stream where I, um, you know, take questions from readers about every month. uh, And I'll, you know, do writing updates. And I try to do other things. I have been a little derelict in producing video uh, lately because, uh, writing is more important. Uh, and I will always prioritize that, uh, over, uh, making YouTube videos, unlike, uh, you know, some other, some other writers who are out there. Uh, but, uh, shots having been fired, I think I will, uh, I will say no
0: more. Um, uh, well, hopefully if, uh, whoever the author is, you were taking shots at, if he wants to fire back, he should definitely tag, uh, the optimistic curmudgeon in, in whatever, whatever, uh, post he wants to, uh, respond to, to your shots. Yeah. Um, Oh, uh, real quick, I did want to also ask you: uh, Do you have uh, any connections with uh, Brent Weeks, or do you know do you know his books at all?
1: I, I know of him, but I've never met him. Um, no. yeah,
0: I, I love his books. I think they're they're just uh, so there's uh, it'd be interesting to. I, I think it'd be really interesting to ever hear you guys chat with each other because I feel like y'all would have a lot in common somehow. Uh, but I, I enjoy both of your your works for sure. So. Yeah, awesome.
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've, never, I've never read his stuff. Uh, I know the name, obviously. It was a much bigger writer than me, uh, but
0: uh, but I've never had a chance to meet him. Uh, well, uh, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to, good to be here. Yeah, it's always great to kind of hear uh, folks who, who are to, – to hear, like, thoughts behind the writing, but also to hear the way that all of the ideas sort of uh, come together. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us for this other episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Uh, My guest this episode has been Christopher Rocchio, author of The Sun Eater. If you enjoyed our our conversation, definitely pick up a copy of Book One, Empire of Silence, and keep reading until you get to Ashes of Man out in December of 2022. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful you've been listening to another episode of the optimistic curmudgeon where the best ideas win i'm your host josh herring the optimistic curmudgeon is a project of thales press if you enjoyed this episode please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends you can find us on three major social media platforms search for the optimistic curmudgeon on facebook and linkedin and find us on twitter at the handle at the optimistic c3 this episode was edited and produced by madison Kay, audio engineer for the optimistic curmudgeon Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.